So the martyrs put out a, uh, you know, a, a release. It's a publication about suffering Christians around the world, the persecuted church. And it tells a story how Mr. Kim from Los Angeles was arrested and accused of hostile acts towards North Korea when he was trying to relocate there. He's from L.A., moved to China, eventually he was going to move to North Korea. And he was arrested and accused of hostile acts towards North Korea. And he asked his captors what these hostile acts were. And you know what they said? Prayer. Prayer. He prayed personally. Not only that, though, the North Korean government had an email of his where he had asked his home church in L.A. to pray also for North Korea. The price of such hostile acts, he paid one year in jail. The voice of the martyrs go on, go, goes on to report that even though he was in jail, he certainly did not waste time. Why is that? Because there he continued to pray. And in fact, Kim says that while he was in prison, he got the chance actually to share the message of the Bible to a North Korean official who had asked him, hey, can you write down some information about the Bible that you read? And he said, well, I just started with Genesis. So by God's grace, actually, Mr. Kim was recently... Uh, released, and he is back in Los Angeles, and it goes on, uh, the, the publication goes on to say, show that on a plane back to Los Angeles, he had told them of a joy from the Lord in being used by God in North Korea while he was in prison. If you're like me, we find these uh, reports encouraging. You know, we find, we read of these things, and we are encouraged because people are uh, suffering for their faith, but yet remain strong in the faith. Their faith is strengthened even in the midst of persecution. These reports encourage because we know that in the moment of suffering, we too are going to need God's grace to grant us faith and confidence, knowing that all things, indeed all things, as the book of Romans says, will turn out for our good because God loves us and is for us. I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we are in verses 31 to 39. If you're sitting next to somebody who might not know their way around Scripture, you can help them get there. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. In our passage today, Paul was one who had suffered for the faith, and he writes to others who were suffering for the faith and reminds them and reminds us God loves us and is for us. We looked at the same theme last week. We covered 8, 31, and 32. God loves us and is for us. And we saw that the clearest example of God being for us, God loving us, is in the giving of His own Son. He gives us His own Son. This week, we continue to see that God loves us and is for us in two ways. If you're taking notes here, God loves us and is for us first in bringing us before His throne. And then number two, in bringing us all the way home. I'll repeat that again. First, in bringing us before His throne, and then second, in bringing us all the way home. And uh, hopefully that rhyme there will help you guys remember. So how do we see that God loves us and is for us? We saw last week, in the giving of His own, today, in bring, bringing us before His throne, and then in bringing us all the way home. I'll read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
Praise God for that passage. You see the main point there in verse 31. God loves us and is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? This passage holds out hope and encouragement for you, Christian. It gives you confidence and an enduring hope for you, regardless of whatever situation, suffering, difficulty you may be experiencing even right now. God did not give His people the leftovers of His love. He gave of His own, very own self. He gave of His own Son to the death so that we who repent and believe would have eternal life. And if God is so freely in His mercy and His grace and His love, freely given us His own Son, certainly, of course, He will give you everything else in His Son so that you might embrace the Son in the end. Thank God His love and commitment sustains us. We, we are cast back, right, to Romans chapter 8, 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. There, once again, we're supposed to be cradled in God's love for us that goes from eternity past into the future, right? So there you have foreknown, predestined. Into the, fe- or into the present, we have called and justified, and then into the future, glorified. It's so certain it's spoken of in, in the past tense. He already has glorified us. That's confidence. Not in ourselves, of course but in God's faithfulness to fulfill every single thing that he has promised to his children. You see there in the climax, right, verses 38 and 39, Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. But of course, before going to the climax there, he shows the practical implications that come with having God as Father or having Christ Jesus as our Savior. And it's actually super practical. You see, number one there, first, God loves us and is for us in bringing us before His throne. In bringing us before His throne. Now, for a moment there, you might wonder, like, how exactly is that good? How, is that, how does that show that God loves us and is for us? Because going before His throne, according to the book of Romans, is actually really bad news. He's going to bring us before His throne, and we might think, right, knowing everything that says about Romans, that we are that we have rebelled against our one creator king. God loves us, created us to be in a good relationship, a loving relationship with him, but yet we rebelled, we have, create, we, we have sinned against our creator, we stand guilty before God, and now we face just punishment before the one and only true king because of our treason, right? Going before the throne, that sounds bad, but it's just for those who love God, they are brought before his throne, not for judgment, but for what? for reconciliation, for righteousness. It's a completely different summons before the king for those who love God, isn't it? Have any of you, when you were growing up, uh, gotten called into the principal's office because you got in trouble? Just raise your hand. You know, we've, we've been forgiven, okay, of our sins. The first, the first time I remember getting called into the principal's office was when I was about six. I say remember it's because... I had thrown a chair at a little boy in kindergarten. Not a good example to follow, my children. Um, he had, anyways, we'll, we'll move on. <laughs> um, and I also say the first time because I went to the principal's office at six years old and I went there another time. Um, anyways, you know, that was a summons, right? I remember this one time when I was six years old, I was standing at the bus stop and uh, the fruit of the tree fell off the ground, and I was like, hey, let's just throw it over the wall. I threw it over the wall, and it hit a car that I couldn't see. And, uh, you know, I was just having fun throwing berries, but apparently the berries hit the car, and the driver got freaked out. She thought, you know, I could have crashed. Anyway, so I thought, okay, it's done. Like, they, they actually drove around where I was at the bus stop. They asked who was throwing the berries. I said, I was throwing the berries, and I thought I was done. You know, I had apologized. But then I go to school, and then somebody comes to my classroom and says, the principal wants to see you, Jeremy. And so there I am, a six-year-old, six-year-old, six years old, getting summoned to the principal's office. Off to the principal's office I go. 
And uh, then it wasn't the principal's office like it was today. You know, the summons could have really been a summons of judgment. You walk into the principal's office, you see the principal sitting there. Dan Thomas was his name. And above him, hanging on the wall behind him, was the paddle. This was back in the days when you actually got paddled at the principal's discretion. Thankfully, I evaded paddling. But uh, nevertheless, I was freaked out because, you know, I was getting called into the principal's office. But imagine getting summoned to appear before the one and only sovereign God who has charges against you, not for throwing berries over a wall, but for rebelling against him. For, as Romans has already, Paul has already said, for suppressing him and his truth in ungodliness and unrighteousness. For not recognizing his rightful place in your life and in the universe that you think you rule. As you pretend that the stuff he has made is greater than he, the creator. He has charges against you for knowing, even if in the back of our minds, that he exists, but insisting that we follow our own ways as if we are our own gods. He even gives us sort of a a gift of our conscience, right? That tells us or where we have the ability to determine right from wrong, or at least know what is right and what is wrong. But even still, we reject what our consciences remind us. The wonderful thing, Christian, is that God does not summon us for condemnation, even in your sin. He doesn't summon you for condemnation. He summons you for reconciliation, for righteousness. He has the legitimate charges against you. He sends somebody out there, knocks on the door and says, I want you to bring this person to my office where he gives you his very own son to save you from condemnation that you deserve. And the son takes that condemnation upon himself. He is sent of God to do what we could not do, right? Live the righteous life before God that was demanded of us. And then he takes upon himself the sin and the wrath that we deserved. So in the giving of his own, his own son, we have divine rescue. That's an entirely different summons. A summons which is a pledge of love in Christ. Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost. Praise God. Those who believe on him and trust in him, the Son brings before the Father. So you get this image of, this, of God knowing man's sin and sending his Son in divine rescue so that all who repent and believe in him would be saved. And so not only that, though, but after that, the Son brings all of those who repent and believe to the Father's presence. Once again, not for reckoning, but for a new relationship, for reconciliation, for righteousness before the righteous one, right? For the righteous one to have fellowship with the unrighteous, we need his righteousness. We need to have our sins wiped away. We need God's face to be turned towards us in favor where God declares us righteous in justification. We are saved. We are justified. We are declared righteous. Everybody who would turn and believe on Christ by faith. Therefore, Christians stand before God righteous, and now all condemnation, right? Your whole rap sheet, all the charges that he had against you are removed because God's own desire to save you. For God's own desire to adopt you into his family as sons and daughters of God. So though we are stained with sin in Christ, God provides a Savior where we were worthy, genuinely worthy of accusation in Christ, God affirms his love for us. When we deserved condemnation, God in Christ confers us the status of children of God. All of that because he loves us. All of that is is meant when I say brought before his throne. It's a summons so that we would know love. When God brings us before his throne, he justifies us. We have forgiveness. We are good with God, so to speak. We know life eternal, and we are adopted into his family. We are justified. So, non-Christian, the wonderful thing here, if you're visiting with us today, the wonderful thing here is that God sends out preachers, right? He sends Jesus to speak the gospel, who hears the gospel to everybody who hears him, right? 
It's not preaching only to some. It's kind of preaching to all. Everybody who is weary, come and you will know rest. He says, you who are hungry, you who are thirsty, come without money and I will give you bread and food, the bread and food of salvation to everybody. And so we as Christians, we just go out and we herald this wonderful gospel. And we hold out to you a love that you can, in fact, know if you would repent of your sins and believe. And so God calls you to that now. It's a summons. It's a call. It's a command to turn and believe on him and know this reconciliation. Christian, did you know that that with this salvation comes ongoing blessings? When you are justified, there are actually ongoing blessings. The ongoing blessings there are in 33 and 34. The blessings are freedom from accusation and freedom from condemnation. Freedom from accusation now, even though you were saved then. Freedom from condemnation now, even though you were saved then. Look there, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Then he asks the same question. Who is to condemn? So you see the logic of the passage there. If God has given his people his very own son, then two questions follow. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall condemn God's people? And the rhetorical answer is, of course, well, no charge will stick ever. No accusation, no condemnation. Why? Because God himself is on our side. Now, when you read this, once again, you don't want to ask the question. I'm sorry, you don't want to answer. Well, no one. So when he says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? You you shouldn't really answer no one who was to condemn. You shouldn't answer no one because we know, right, we get falsely accused regularly. You get condemned in the eyes of other people, probably regularly. Some of you guys might know this. You know, if you, I know that some of you guys know this. When you became Christians, um, all of a sudden you started looking at the things you used to love differently. You started looking at the drugs differently. You started looking at sex differently. You started looking at your career choices differently and your delights and your desires because God was changing your heart. Um, uh, and then maybe your friends even were looking at you and you stopped doing all these things and they think, oh man, he's definitely not on our side anymore. Maybe even some of your own family thought that. And so they think that, well, you don't love us anymore because you're not getting drunk with us anymore. And so there's false accusations, maybe even condemnation, all because of this Jesus that you follow. So the answer is not, no one's going to accuse us. There are many accusations. But the answer is that no charge, no accusation at the end of the day will finally stick and work to condemnation. This idea of false accusations is certainly not new. If you go and read the book of Acts, you see there the early church is growing. And as I prayed earlier, we know too that the church grows actually when there is persecution. You can think of uh, when Stephen, the first martyr, is stoned. It says that the disciples, they scattered, or all but the disciples, I believe it says, uh, scattered. Actually, let's just go ahead and turn there. Acts chapter 8. And here a man named Stephen is the first martyr of the church. He dies defending Christianity, his Christ. You look there, this is Saul. Saul eventually becomes Paul, right? So this Saul here, uh, spoken of in 8.1, is Paul, the man who would become, come to be known as Paul the Apostle. And Saul here, at this point in time, he is anti-Christian. He is killing Christians. It says there, and Saul approved of his, that is Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women committed and committed them to prison. But did you notice there that the whole entire church scatters throughout the very places that God had intended the gospel to go. Persecution, the church scatters, and so the church continues to grow. But in terms of this false accusation, right, Stephen was falsely accused. His accusers purposefully, quote, set up false witness, close quote, against him. They had charged him with, with this, you know, trumped up charges of disrespecting the law of Moses. Paul the Apostle 
After he becomes a Christian, after Christ reveals himself, you know, he, uh, Jesus charged him to go on various missionary journeys. In Acts chapter 19, Paul was accused of wanting to disrupt the economy. He goes and preaches that there is only one God, and so the idol manufacturers come along and say, wait a minute, we make our living off of making idols. He's disrupting our economy. So therefore, uh, you know, trumped-up charges were thrown against him, and then soon enough there's some rioting going on. And these are all false accusations. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul's in prison and has to go on trial eventually all the way to Rome because of false accusations, Acts 23. Of course, we know that here in the book of Romans, there were all false accusations leveled against them, and it would only get worse, as history shows us. But imagine being in their situation, or just think of when you have been falsely accused for doing something in terms of representing Christ. How would you respond? I figure that there's really only two, two options here of how you can respond, sinfully that is. You could fear, you could renounce the faith, or you could take action in anger, Take vengeance against those who are against the faith. Well, friends, it's into those heart issues that Paul speaks. Knowing their hearts were uh, maybe fearful, well, Romans chapters 5 to 8, he gives confidence to the Christian. He helps allay their fears. And then in Romans chapter 12, Paul writes to those who might be tempted to revenge. Go ahead and look there, Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Just go ahead and skim there. Romans chapter 12, 14, he says there, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. I'm guessing that uh, they were tempted to curse them, right? That's why he's writing. You look there in verse 17, he says, do not return evil for evil. I'm guessing we all know what this, is, this, you know, this temptation might, what this might look like. Or look at verse 19, uh, people might be tempted to take matters into their own hands. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now we're going to get to the fact that vengeance is of the Lord, but here in our passage we see that regardless of false accusations, the only judgment that really matters to you, Christian, is of the Lord. No matter what false accusations may be lobbed against you, God has already spoken on your behalf. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? So false accusations, whether from individuals or or from governments, no accusation will finally stick, not because of some sort of legal technicality that you are so clever to get out of or to use in order to get out of the accusation, but because God who presides over all of the heavenly courts has already once and for all granted you pardon declared you righteous, counted you righteous in Jesus Christ. So those are like the earth, earthly accusations coming from humans. I think Paul has more in mind than just accusations from other people. I think he has spiritual accusation and condemnation in mind as well. Spiritual accusation and condemnation in mind as well. Think right from Satan, who sometimes even works in such a way to... Uh, heap ungodly guilt and condemnation upon your own soul. And so it's almost like you carry around those accusations and condemnations and think that somehow, even though God has already spoken for you on your behalf in Christ, you nevertheless feel like you will not be saved, even though you have repented and believed. Look at who the perceived threat is in Romans chapter 8, verse 38. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. He talks about spiritual powers. It's the spiritual powers that are named as things that Christians might be tempted to think that, that uh, these things will prevent them from laying hold of Christ at the end. Perhaps Satan, who stands behind evil spiritual powers, might somehow level an accusation against God's people, right? Forever guilty. Too guilty. You are too guilty to be cleansed by God. Too shameful to stand in the presence of God. Too damaged to be made new by God. I'm guessing some of you guys know what this is like. Christian Satan goes to battle with false accusations, and it actually helps us to know that this is his mode of operation. Revelation chapter 12 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. He's the chief prosecutor. So imagine Satan, as it were, putting you 
the people of God on trial trying to demoralize us in the faith and chip away any sense of confidence in what God has done and is doing in your life. One English pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones helped hearers picture the scene uh, saying that Satan says sort of disparagingly, look at what you've done. Look at who you are. You're no child of God. You are useless. Christian, you know that the Bible speaks about a good guilt before God that leads to repentance and an ungodly guilt which is not good, ungodly. It is bad. It is against Christ. Godly guilt is good because it leads to repentance, right? It casts us back on the cross, God's work of love, His grace, His mercy, when we know that we've done something wrong. That's good guilt. Praise God for good guilt. Then there's ungodly guilt, which is not good and satanic because it says you are too guilty to be saved. You are too sinful to be saved. It's actually a guilt that says there is no way, absolutely no way God would save an unrighteous sinner like you. And so you think, I do way too much unrighteousness to ever be righteous. Friends, that kind of guilt kills Because it's that kind of guilt that leaves our faces and hearts actually looking away from Christ. It's that kind of guilt and shame that works to to make you not trust Christ's righteousness and work. Why? Because it wants you to rely on your own righteousness and work. Right? And so you never actually get to the cross. Instead, you bear the load all by yourself. That, friend, is slave labor. That's working for your righteousness. That, without a shadow of a doubt, will lead you to despair because there's no room, absolutely zero room, for a salvation by grace in Christ. Friends, you realize that Satan rejoices in tripping up God's people. And with every accusation he lobs, with every stone of burden he heaps on your back, Christian. Satan, the accuser, rejoices to see the children of God crawling in the dust, crushed by the burden of guilt and shame. If Satan cannot lure us away from God with false gods, he will try to destroy us with false understandings of the one true God, that he is in fact gracious and saves even the worst of sinners, however one might define worst. Friends, God loves us and is for us in His steadfast love and grace. That's what we see here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn, right? No accusation will stick. Why? He says there first. He says there, because God is the justifier. Because God is the justifier. He says the judge has already pronounced his declaration because of Christ, Christian. You are righteous before me forever. Even if you are wrong, even in your sin, all of your wrongdoing, if you are in Christ and are obeying Christ, if you love Him, right, you're going to obey His commands. Not perfectly, but you certainly will strive to by His grace. And all of that wrongdoing, it will never work towards your condemnation. Never. Because you Christians have been declared righteous before God. He has already spoken. And that actually is the emphasis here in the passage, isn't it? It's not just that you receive righteous standing. It's not like, who is to condemn? I already have righteousness. He doesn't say that. He says, who is to condemn? And then who does he point us to? It's not the thing we possess, but the God that is over us, the God who speaks. It is God himself. He has counted you righteous. The judge has already pronounced his declaration, and he is the greatest authority. We also see that he is the greatest protector. Those who accuse and condemn God's people have God himself to reckon with. You ought to hear that language of authority and that language of protection when it says God is the justifier. Just imagine, right, a king who fiercely guards his citizens from the threat of attack. So, friends, God guards his children, his beloved Here's another reason why uh, no charge will stick at the end of the day. It's because God is on our side, right? You hear that in the language of protection. That's exactly what we are supposed to think once again when we read, who shall bring any charge against not just the elect, not just the church, but he reminds us, God's elect. Friends, we are God's beloved. 
We are God's own people. Once again, this casts our minds back to Romans 8, 28 and, 30, 28 and 29. He who has pledged his love all by his free graces enter into a covenant with people. And he promises to see us all the way home there, all the way until our glorification. No matter who accuses you or condemns you, whether earthly or spiritual powers, no matter who calls you to account and falsely accuses you. Friends, you've got to know that the Almighty God is on your side towards you in fatherly love and against those who oppose Him. Revelation chapter 12, Satan the accuser, the one who delights in the insecurity of God's people is thrown down and defeated in the arrival of God's chosen one, Jesus Christ. And it says there about in His authority and in His shed blood. Christian, if you're struggling right now to to, to bear those accusations on yourself and that condemnation on yourself. You've got to know here, Paul wants you to know, God himself wants you to know that Christ is your protector. He is on your side. And all of that authority is going to be wielded in power to protect you. Look at what Paul says there. Who is to condemn? He goes on and says, Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Just take a moment there and think like, how do those four truths about Jesus actually give us confidence when there is a condemnation? Just think about that for one moment there. Like, look at those four truths. Just try and work it out for yourself in, in a couple seconds here. In this verse, we actually see God's authority and protection brought together once again more clearly. He says first, you know, we've already covered this stuff, Christ is the one who died and the one who was raised. His death and his resurrection works towards our justification. Romans 4.25 says Christ was raised for our justification. What does that mean? It says that the payment, it means that the payment that he had paid is paid once and for all. In his death and then in his resurrection, he shows all that no more payment is needed. It's finished. He proves all that God's wrath for his people has been absorbed. This is justification. He declares his righteous. God gave his own son. God, the greatest authority, has already spoken in his heavenly courts once and for all who, for all who repent and believe. And then in the next two things that he says there, we are reminded of Christ's authority working for our protection. We see there that he reigns and is at the right hand of God. That's authority. Talking about Psalm 110, right? This fulfilled in Jesus Christ, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. There's a passage that Oscar read to us earlier. But you see the implications, friends? Just think now, if you've been falsely accused, just think of the Roman Christian situation, right? Falsely accused by the government. Christians here, they were accused by the greatest authority of all time, the greatest superpower of the world. And then you think about the greatest evil spiritual powers, that is Satan. And he says, who will finally defeat us if Christ fights for us? Christ, who has already made mockery of Satan and shown us what will happen in the end, that is the destruction of Satan and all who oppose him, then what should our answer be? Of course it is no one, because Christ fights for me. He is seated at the right hand of God, a position of authority, of kingship, where his enemies are made his footstool. And that Christ defends you, Christian, against the greatest earthly powers of the world and all of their accusations. Now, that has something to do very much with Mr. Kim, who just got back to Los Angeles. That has something to do with you, Christian, when you are accused of something falsely. Who will finally defeat us? If Christ is for us, the answer is no one. We are protected by this Christ, the King, and we are ushered into his presence, God's presence. As it says there, he intercedes for us or he pleads our case. You see, it's not only courtroom language, but it's also like fatherly language, too. We know, right, that Christ has given us his very own spirit by which we call out Abba, Father. Even in our accusations, our Father is looking out for us. He has our back in ways that we don't even realize. Here in Romans, we have a beautiful picture of Christ, the warrior who sacrifices his own life to save. Christ who overcomes sin, death, and Satan. And a Christ who, in his ascension, clears the path to the king's throne. 
so he might present all those who are in him to the Father as he intercedes for us and pleads our case before the Father forever. We have God's absolute authority wielded in his steadfast love for those who believe. So as verse 31 asks, if God is for us, well, who can be against us? No one will ultimately triumph over us because God has brought us before the throne. And so, of course, God will bring us all the way home. This is point number two, definitely shorter. Point number two, God will bring us all the way home. Christian, with, with Christ for us, does this change the way you think about those who are against you? And I know, that, I know that the vast majority of you aren't necessarily suffering for your faith so explicitly as like Mr. Kim was or even these Christians were, but presumably you are living out your faith. And if you're doing that well, presumably the world will think you're really strange. Maybe they won't want to promote you. Maybe they might ostracize you. Maybe they might say bad things about you. But, but the fact that Christ is for you in your workplace, with your neighbors, with your family members, doesn't that change the way you think about those who are against you? It certainly did for Paul. You look there, verse 35, right? He says that no matter what there is, in all of these things, ultimately, they have no power of, over us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, earthly situations, all against him, and against Christians. And then he expands it. He goes like, he, he goes expansive there in verse 38, right? Inclusive and comprehensive, in fact. Death nor life, angels nor rulers. There he's talking about spiritual beings. Says the same in Ephesians. He says, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, again, that's spiritual beings, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Certainly, suffering is normal for the average Christian, the average follower of God throughout the centuries. Paul affirms this there in verse 36. You look there, verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, you might think, like, but isn't he arguing against what he's saying? Actually, he's not. In Psalm 44, which this quotation is from, by the end of it, right, the people would have known Psalm 44 so much that by the end of it, Psalm 44, they know that they are crying out to God to act once again in his steadfast love. And he says, so Christians can do the exact same to him no matter what they face. None of these things will separate us from the love of Christ. And so you look at 837, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's incredible. He doesn't say we are conquerors, does he? He doesn't just say that. He says we are more than conquerors in these things. Even in death from persecution, we are more than conquerors. So you might be thinking, like, how in the world can he say that? That I am more than a conqueror. Because we might look at suffering and death and think, in fact, we have been defeated in death. Well, Paul looks at these truths and he comes and says, well, no way. We are not, we are not defeated in these things. And you know what enables him to say that we are more than conquerors? The only thing, the only way that he can say that is because he knows and loves exactly where Christ is taking him. He knows and loves exactly where Jesus is taking him. That is glorification to see him face to face where we will worship with him, worship him into eternity. And that right there makes all the difference. When he says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, he knows that there are things that mess with us. He knows that Christians were sawn into and suffered persecution, right? He knows that these things may hound us and even cause us to stumble temporarily and even end our earthly lives. But his point is, they can never stop Christ from fulfilling his plans for his people, for Christ's glory and for our good. Everything is through him who loved us. That's how we are more than conquerors. It's his plans and his work of grace to take us to his end for his glory. So Christians, to what degree is God's aim and goal for you? Sanctification in this life, glorification into the next. 
To what degree is God's aim and goal for you your aim and goal for yourself? It's a question I've asked before, a question that we return to right now. The more that it is, well, friends, the more confidence you're going to have in Christ whenever you face these things. The more confidence you have in Christ when you face these things, tribulation, persecution, distress, suffering for Jesus Christ, spiritual attack. And friends, you realize that if your life goal is anything other than Christ, anything other than living under and for Him, living like Him, all the while with Him, right? You will not care about God's love for you in Christ. You've got to know that. You don't have God's aim and goal for you. You don't care about God's love for you. But if your goal is to be like Christ and to be with Christ, then you look at those situations, you say, come what may. In fact, not even come what may, that's kind of passive. You say, bring it on. Not in a way that you're challenging God, but actually in a way that you're challenging everything that is against you and God. It's kind of like David who says, who is this Philistine that challenges the armies of God? That's how you respond when God's goal and aim for you is your own goal and aim for yourself. This is, in fact, Paul's example. Think about this, okay? Think about spiritual warfare. You have the devil against him. How does he respond? 2 Corinthians 12, he says, hey, a messenger of Satan was sent to me and tormented me, right? He had these health problems. He said a messenger of Satan did these things to him. How does he understand it? Spiritual persecution. Is it going to separate him from the love of Christ? Absolutely not. No, it works out in such a way that helps him grow in the fruit of the Spirit. Right? These things happen so that I might grow in humility. It helped him rely on Jesus Christ all the more to grow in his grace, to boast in the sufficiency of God's grace and the strength of Jesus Christ and that God's power is going to be made perfect in his weakness in my earthly ministry that's how he saw the situation there, spiritual attack. We could go on. You could take a look at death, right? Philippians 1, verse 21. What does he say? He's in prison, right? He knows that a death sentence will probably come. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Even in death, according to Christ's purposes, his people are brought into his presence. And he says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Death, friends, whether persecution or even suffering the effects of living in this sinful world like illness, death is the Christian's homegoing. Even that is worked out for your good, Christian. Through death, God's people gain permanent entrance into the presence of Christ. That's how he can look at these things and say, come what may bring it on. It is translation. It is translation. That is, let me explain that, the process of moving something from one place to another place. That's what that, that preacher, English preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that's what he called death. It's translation. This is what he goes on to say, right? He says, for the sons and daughters of God, he says something to the effect of, for the sons and daughters of God who know God's justification for us, that God has spoken once and for all, by the authority of all the heavenly courts, as he sits in them, he owns them, and as he speaks once and for all, declaring us righteous, right? The Christian no longer has to fear death and judgment because we've already heard the final judgment rendered already not guilty in the blood of Christ. This is what he says, right? He, he preached while the bombs were dropping, and I literally mean while the bombs were dropping in World War II in London. This is what he says, right? He's encouraging the church to face death like a Christian. Let the bombs fall. Let war come. Let disease and pestilence ravage the lands. Let me die. What is it? Translation to be with him. This old body of mine, the body of my humiliation, the body of infirmity, the body of disease, the body of death, transfigured, changed glorified, made like the body of Christ's resurrection. And I, in this new glorified body, ushered into his blessed presence to spend my eternity with him. Think about the Christians back then. It is because they knew things like that that these people were filled with gladness. As we conclude this sermon, Christian, are you filled with gladness? Gladness. 
as you suffer? Are you filled with gladness as you suffer, knowing these things? A few practical application points <clears throat> for us to grow in gladness. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. If you know your gladness is suffering in the midst of suffering, your gladness in Jesus Christ, your joy in Jesus Christ, and the things of Christ, sanctification, glorification, bright, being, seeing face Christ to Christ, being face to face, seeing Jesus Christ, being brought into his presence. If that's suffering in the midst of your suffering, let me encourage you to see what discourages you in the midst of, midst of trials. You know, trials are supposed to refine our faith, right? We know that. But what God is doing, he's bringing to the surface all the junk that you want to cling to, and he helps us throw it away so that we might cling to Jesus Christ. Or, or also, know, think about these things well underneath the lordship of Christ, which is a wonderful, beautiful thing. But he desires that we hold ultimately to him. What is it that you don't want to let go of in your own trials right now? Maybe you don't have the spouse that you dreamed of. Maybe it's hard to let go of the future that you wanted for your children. Maybe you are middle-aged like myself, and you realize that you have unfulfilled earthly dreams. Even the dreams might be good, but nevertheless, what, what isn't good is the fact that you or myself might be unhappy seeing them unfulfilled. Maybe you're a senior. You look at, once again, your life as death is right over the horizon, and you have not done what you have planned to do. Or maybe you are not who you've always wanted to be. In those moments there, you see that your aims and goals for your life are probably not so aligned to the dreams and goals, the aims that God has for yourself. And where you know those things, secondly, after examining yourself, confess them to God. Those are the things that you want to cling to, that you're craving, that you so desire to achieve or be. And that's where you find your identity. And, but friends, your identity is not in those things. Your identity is in Jesus Christ if you're a Christian. So confess those things. Repent. Turn back to Jesus Christ. And then third, in effort to make God's plans for us, our plans for ourselves, fix yourselves, your mind, your hopes, and your dreams on what Christ has promised to those who have suffered. Goes back, goes back to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. It is suffering, that's certainly true, and then glory. Ask yourself, why is it that I love the things of the world too much and the things of glory too little? God has plans to glorify us, so let us then fix our hearts on things to come, not the things that will surely go. If you make God's plans for you, your plans for yourself, Friends, you realize that you will not have to fight God's sovereign providence. Instead, you sail sweetly along with it. If God's goals and aims for you are your own goals and aims for yourself, friends, you face all of these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, death, life, angels, rulers, things present or things to come, powers, height, or depth, anything else in all creation, you face all of those things and you sail sweetly along the sovereign providence of God, knowing, friends, that he is going to bring you all the way home. You know, we sang that new song there, Be Still My Soul, which is such a sweet song. And yeah, you know, okay, it's a hymn. And, you know, these days, you know, that's not exactly the thing that you broadcast on PowerPoint. You throw up on, on the screen there. Might be a little stiff and, I don't know, a little crumpety whatever that means um but nevertheless this is the kind of song that has the lyrics that will see you to the grave this kind of song i mean there are other good songs too i mean we, you know we sing Tomlin's songs we sing all sorts of different songs but friends you you look at the you look at the language here and the the poetry it's just so beautiful and what really stuck out to me when i sang it you look there the the middle line all the way down the third bar or whatever you call that thing uh, to the right side, it says, be still, my soul. Well, how is it that we can be still in suffering? 
And then he casts us all the way back to Jesus' authority over the wind and the waves as creator over everything. As Yahweh come to earth in the flesh, the son of God. He speaks to the waves and the winds and they are still. And so he says the waves and winds, they still know, they too still know. (laughs) His voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. And then, too, you know, as it ends there, the, the last verse, that same little section there, be still, my soul, when change and tears are past in heaven before the face of God, all safe and blessed we shall meet at last, all because of God's steadfast love to sinners who deserve nothing but his wrath. Praise God for his steadfast love. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we give you great praise. We thank you for the love of God, the love of Christ. We thank you for your spirit that you have given to us. We thank you, Lord, that even now the spirit of Jesus Christ helps us cry out, Abba, Father. And so in our weakness and in our inability and in our guilt and in our shame, Lord, we boast in all of those things. Not because we are glad to sin or glad because we have guilt, but because we know that we are cast back on Christ and we know that the blood of the Lamb has covered us and declared us righteous once and for all. Father, we pray that we would hold so loosely to the stuff of this life and even our very own lives. We ask, Lord, that we would look around and see the clear and evident suffering in the world and even the suffering in our own lives as maybe we are losing our loved ones or have lost our loved ones. And know, Lord, that nothing, not even our very own lives, ought to be the thing we live for. But, Lord, we pray that you, our creator and Lord, would be the only thing that captivates our hearts. Lord, we ask that you would get all of the glory. And, Lord, we pray, too, that even in the midst of our suffering, no matter how difficult it might be, we pray, Lord, that our non-Christian friends would see us, and see our honesty, see our lament, See our discouragement, but we pray too, Lord, that they would see our hope in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, this unfailing hope in the glory that is to come because of Christ. And so, Lord, we ask that they too would come to know Christ and his love for sinners. In your name we pray, amen.